Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. We've got a work of art that uh, has a curse associated with it. Now, to work out how this has all come about, you're going to have to read Catherine Kovacic's Painting in the Shadows. So, Catherine, welcome back to 3CR. Thank you, David. Good morning. Now, look, once again, we find ourselves with the art dealer, Alex Clayton, encountering suspicious deaths, or there's an accident and a death among the artwork, but... There's a curse associated with this artwork called Lancier's Man Proposes, God Disposes. What is that curse? Well, the painting itself is to do with uh, a disastrous expedition into the the Arctic where the two crews, two ships, were all lost. So the painting has a curse associated with it that um, it shows some polar bears and if you sit, first of all, if you sit near this painting during your exams, you will undoubtedly fail. But apparently if you gaze into the eyes of the polar bears, well, very bad things may happen. Uh, deaths tend to follow. So it's, it's unusual for an artwork to be cursed as such, isn't it? It's very rare. It's usually... a uh, gemstones, diamonds, those sorts of things that we have curses associated with. Um, Certainly paintings from, this is from the Victorian period, it's quite an unusual thing. The only one I know of is the picture of Dorian Gray, but that's a sort of slightly different, uh, intriguing thing. So Lansdier's painting is used to open this mystery. A workman suffers a heart attack and damages the painting. And then senior art conservator Meredith Buchanan is found dead having worked on the restoration. But just before we get into that, what's interesting then is there's an artwork that opens this uh, Mm -hmm. novel, but it's also a contemporary artwork that helps us solve the problem at the end. You've got it dovetailed, bookended with these artworks. Yes, yes. Well, I I like the idea of coming in with the old, so history always appeals to me, but um, there's so much interesting things about new works and I think uh, about the way paint plays on surface in newer works compared to the old, so it was great to be able to look at that. And and just to have, well, from a structural point of view, that contemporary work of art helps uh, resolve the mystery. Yes, it does. But uh, the art detail in this is fantastic. Now, I'm disappointed that this book doesn't come with coloured <laughs> plates because you refer to art all the way through and there's a significance about this art in many ways because it, it adds to the context. Very much so. So we're set in a, in a gallery, the Melbourne Institute or the Melbourne Museum of Art, and Alex Clayton, the protagonist, is an art dealer. So... That's part of what she does is she looks at the detail in art and she looks at the detail around her. But she very much sees things almost through an art perspective. So she's always looking at paintings and they're always cropping up in her thoughts. And that's that's how we sort of get into that kind of mode. But it also, I mean, when you you think about the Lansdeer and what the attitudes were of the day um, and exploration and the challenges, um, it sets that context. Every artwork sets a context for the period in which it's in. 
Definitely. So the Lancier, the title, Man Proposes, God Disposes, you know, that's a very moralistic sort of thing that you can do what you like in the world, but God's going to be able to hit the smite button if he decides that you've gone the wrong way. And the Victorians were very much into that. You know, there's lots of lessons to be learned in Victorian art. But then when we get through into 20th century there's in Australia, there's also things to be seen there. Yeah, and the significance then in, mm. of, of art in our culture. But as you said, Alex has got an eye for art. And I love this detail because so have you as an author um, because we come across a librarian. This is only a minor character um, and it's the detail. Uh, At first glance, she seems impossibly beautiful. An artful tumble of thick black curls frames a heart-shaped face with creamy skin and dramatic cheekbones. Her green eyes are subtly highlighted by perfect smoky shadow and her lips are that almost nude shade of pink that makes me look ill but on her conveys an aura of understated elegance. The look is completed by what I can see of her clothes, which can only be described as library chic. It's just a shirt with a flounce at the neck beneath a sharply cut navy jacket and she probably got it at Laura Ashley or Country Road but on this woman it looks looks like Chanel. Behind me I hear John sigh. Yes, she sets a pair of gold framed glasses on her nose and peers up at us and with that gesture and the tone of her voice I find the librarian I was looking for and at the same moment see all the little things hiding behind the facade of perfection. Eyes that are actually a bit too close together and have a harsh glint lump Lumpy skin beneath the thick foundation and a hint of brown roots at the crown of her head. But it, that artistic eye as an author that you have as well. Thank you. But it's, I think for me it's very much part of Alex's persona to see that detail. And I think with the librarian, that idea of, you know, when you, you see a painting or you see something from a distance and you think, wow, and then you get closer and you think, oh, oh, there's something about that that doesn't quite work. But to do that with people, though, that's, that's the cheeky thing that you're doing. You're also relatively cheeky when it comes to art, may I say. Uh, you actually take the mickey out of it. I think we're seeing here... Well, I, I think what we're seeing here is the clarification of temporal phenomena, a veritable solipsism, if you will. There's a sense of contemplation, yet also diligent artistic practice. The diverse influences of Bob Dylan and Van Gogh are evident, but I sense the emergence of what one could almost think of as an homage of Madame Ble- to Madame Blavatsky and L. Ron Hubbard, hardly surprising in light of the artist's American experiences. Well, we've all seen modern paintings like that, haven't we, David? <laughs> I'm sure you have. <laughs> Blue poles, for example, and, and, the, and the reaction. But, I mean, L. Ron Hubbard, that's old Mother Hubbard from Scientology. <laughs> it's, well, can I say it on air? Bullshit. Um, how <laughs> how um, much of that sort of um, rubbish is being said in the art world? I think, well, dare I say it, you, you sometimes find that with uh, modern art, the artist manifesto, shall we say, or their explanation of what, um, you know, sometimes it'll be something like a video of someone digging a hole that just runs for half an hour. And you think it's a person digging a hole and you're about to turn away, but then you read the card on the wall and there's this lengthy discourse on the inherent meaning of the person digging the hole. And you think, did I miss something here? And You're not talking about an actual artwork or an installation. I'm not talking about an actual artwork, but it's, you know, but that's who we are. I mean, it, it then, un, well, how do we know something is a work of art? 
well, how do we know something's literature? This is a, this is a very big discussion, David. Um, I look, I think in many ways art is, is what you want it to be. So if it, it means something to you and you think it's beautiful on your wall, then it's art. There you are. Um, now, at the centre of this mystery, so we've had the detail, we've had, you know, what art is, but at the centre of this mystery, in fact, is a Brett Whiteley painting. Uh, why Brett Whiteley? There's a reason for that. Well, I like Brett Whiteley, but I think modern art, again, we come back to that and the ease of being able to create modern artworks. If you wanted to forge something from the 1600s, for example, you have to be very, very diligent with your... And this is... this. I don't know... The, Not let, that you've let, ever let tried anything like this. No, no, no. But in terms of your materials, um, science is very advanced these days in detecting original materials, original paint pigment, the makeup of the pigment, the type of dust that is stuck in the paint and the varnish and therefore being able to authenticate or discount something. Whereas with modern works of art, we're very much down to um, the interpret- the artist's eye, really, um, and being able to, to have that connoisseurship to know what is true and what isn't because the materials are ubiquitous, so you can't say whether it was painted in Brett Whiteley's day in the 70s and early 80s or whether it was painted last week because the paint is essentially the same. Mm, so that makes it significant. I think also then there have been some... Whiteley forgeries on the market. Yes. Of of dubious provenance, shall we say. say. Homages to Whiteley, perhaps, (laughs) because I believe the people involved were acquitted of all charges, so therefore we cannot say they're forgeries, but it's in the contemporary consciousness, shall we say. Yeah. Yeah. The detail, again, we come back to it because this is what makes or differentiates Alex because she notices things that the police don't. I'm going to mispronounce this. Uh, I can't even get it out now. Alizarin. Alizarin Crimson. Alizarin. Alizarin. I've got to get that right. Alizarin Crimson. So the actual colour. And there's also a torn photo. Mm -hmm. What's the significance of these little clues? Well, this is, again, this is Alex with her dealer's eye, I think. So she she very much relies on living by her wits, on seeing things that other people don't see and therefore being able to turn what might look like a dud painting to someone else into the profit that she knows it is. So she notices these little things like the particular shade of red or the fact that a photo has been torn up and might mean something, it might look like nothing, but it might be something. But it also goes back to how artists operate. They keep a record. So why would you tear up a photo? Indeed. So you've got to be aware of the practices, which investigators in the police department aren't necessarily familiar with. Now, threaded through this novel is a relationship between Alex Clayton and conservator John Porter, which was in the previous mm-hmm. um, novel about Molly Dean. It's a platonic relationship. What are you playing with here? Well, Alex and John have been friends for a very long time, since their university days. They may have had a past, they may not. We don't know at this stage. But um, so it's it's a it's a close relationship. Sometimes it perhaps tips a little more one way than the other. But um, it's one of those friendships that perhaps they don't want to mess up by looking at it too closely. I think it leaves the reader to suspect or wonder. Uh, so it adds a, another dimension. Um, there's also a level of intrigue. 
Alex's reputation was undermined previously when she spotted a fake. He should have known or he should have consulted a revilious expert, but as you know, his ego has its own postcode. If Alex hadn't spotted the fake, Mima would have lost a lot of money. Now, it's not a good idea to cast a doubt on your superior's professionalism <laughs> and credibility, but that has undermined Alex's chances. Yes, it has, yes. It's, uh, I think there's, there's always egos in any industry, and um, you know, if you're a junior in the field... It's a, it's a fine line between speaking up and saying what you think and, and um, you know, not getting those egos all ruffled and unhappy. But with. how significant are egos in the art industry? Well, I think certainly, you know, I think if, if you're a, an artist, you know, you have to have faith in, in your own ability. If you're a gallery director and you have a lot of minions that you're, you've got at your beck and call, there has to be a bit of ego there. Uh, and I think it's, you know, like many industries, it can be one of those places where people are clambering over each other to, to get up the ladder. But also then, if you've got that pomposity of being able to describe something, even though it's uh, rhubarb and rubbish, these egos and reputations would be very fragile. I think they're very fragile indeed, yes. You, you have to have that confidence to expound upon works uh, and I think not even your own work but to be able to, you know, you know, headsets in galleries that tell you what you're supposed to be looking at. I think that's that's got its own level of arrogance in and of itself. You know, you, you can't just go and look at a still life. You have to listen to what you're particularly meant to be appreciating about the still life. Now, we're rapidly running out of time. Um, we've got Alex uh, and the insecurity of the industry. She's freelance, working as a consultant. Um, how's she going to survive? There's the suggestion that she might be employed by Neiman. Well, that the, the job offer may or may not be on the table, but she's got to consider, you know, how she how she wants to live the rest of her life, really. Does she want to be a cog in the big machine or does she want to run the operation? So that's basically uh, one of the sort of strands of the ending about her future, which, of course, is probably going to lead to the next, uh, in, well, next instalment. Well, possibly, yes. <laughs> and finally, the notion of forgeries. I mean, if a forgery is actually as good as the original... Um, why? What's what is it about the original then? Well, this is a very good question, and, and I mean, is an original an original? Let's let's look at you know the the Leonardo that is uh, now hanging. Well, it's not actually hanging in Dubai because that's supposed to be a Leonardo, but perhaps it's all Leonardo's studio. But they were happy with it before someone said that. Well, we have an original work of art here in Catherine Kovacic's Painting in the Shadows, and it's from Echo Publishing. So, Catherine, thank you once again for thank coming you, in. Thank you, David. Well, we're turning the tide a little bit here. Um, yes, uh, so we're just moving mics also. So, yeah, a bit, bit sadder. Earlier this week on the news, did you see the house exploding in the bushfire? Everything in that home destroyed. Thankfully, not the people. But their memories will be forever altered by that experience. And today's book is about bushfire and its effect on the community. Look, welcome back, Fiona Lowe. Thank you for having me. It's, it's all, all what Fiona does best. It's a story about people too. So where, have, where is this community? Uh, Myrtle is my fictitious town and I've set it in the Otways. Um, in Victoria, in the rainforest down there. And, yeah, it's a little bit of Birigara, it's a little bit of Jellybrand, it's a little bit of Beach Forest. 
bushfires are visually dramatic. It's often the people that are portrayed helping that gives the bushfire the personal story. So we've got Claire. Who's Claire? Uh, Claire's the nurse practitioner in Myrtle. She grew up in Myrtle. She has um, been away from town. She moved back about two years before the bushfires. Um, and, uh, yeah, so she is the the main caregiver of the community. Mm. As you said, Claire growing up in Myrtle, she had a girlhood rival in Beck. Now, why didn't they like each other? I think it's one of those things that they're, they are they're too similar. They're mm. very competitive. Um, they came from completely different families and um, I don't think they've ever really acknowledged how similar they are and therefore they've sparked. Yes, they've always been very competitive, you know, in Pony Club and Girl Guides and all of these things. But Mech, uh, Beck stayed in Myrtle. She didn't go away as uh, Claire did. And she's, she, she's married. Who's she married? Yes, she's married to the town hero. He was um, a very well-regarded man before the fire, but he saved two lives during the bushfire. Um, and he's also a builder in the town. So they're, they're um, an interesting couple because he was very badly burned in the fire, but their house and the business and everything stayed intact. So post-fire, they're actually doing quite well now. Doing very well with the building because, well, there's a lot of building going on, which is good because Josh has lost his job and he gets a job with um, Adam. Now, Josh's job, because we forget about this too. That's right. Josh and Beck moved to Myrtle uh, purely and utterly for a job and cheap house and land. It was their entry into um, the housing market. And six weeks after they built their dream house, having moved from Melbourne, they lost the lot. And Sophie, you know, this is Josh's wife, she wants to be a stay-at-home mum. That was part of the move. She wants to be at home for a few years until the children are at primary school and then she's happy to return to work. And, of course, that is completely and utterly turned on its head when um, they not only lose the house but six months later because Josh was working on a plantation, a pine plantation, Mm -hmm. he lost his job. Lost his job. So... And this is one of the problems too because the government got involved and put in new guidelines to make it much better. So nobody really wanted... They had damaged land. This is Josh Josh and Sophie. They couldn't sell their land because nobody wanted to buy it. They couldn't... They couldn't move out. They just had yeah. To the house there. was in sh- one of the big issues with bushfires. Is um, after a bushfire's gone through, they now look at rezoning, and that has huge impact on uh, building. So um, your house can go up one hundred and fifty thousand dollars in ten seconds mm. after that's been le- levelled, and your house is only insured for what it was worth beforehand. And so they can't afford to to um, build. But they can't afford to leave, and so they're stuck. They're stuck living in a shed. And yeah. this, yeah, this is my fictitious characters, but this happened to so many people. And the government, you know, the government's put in money that it's got six, they've had six grand openings in the 18 months after the bushfires, new schools and community buildings. And of course, all of this has attracted new families too. And there's 
a couple that live in Myrtle, and they're like the town older, uh, older statesmen, really. They're uh, the town leaders, the town heart. And this is Julie and Phil Lang. Yeah, Julie and Phil have been the backbone of Myrtle, and um, they tragically lost um, a son in the fire. But they have managed in the 18 months to um, spearhead the rebuilding program, and but now... Julie is getting weary and she's wanting um, some younger people to step up. Yeah. And she's a little bit she's a little bit crafty in the way she goes about this. <laughs> she believes that um, Beck and um, Claire are the best people for this, but of course they can't really be in a room together. So it's got its own challenges. <laughs> and uh, Sophie comes also. She just needs to get out. And so three bush fire veterans and two bush fire virgins yeah that's right it's a huge challenge with communities because a bushfire um, does this massive demarcation line right down the middle so life falls into two parts it falls into before the fires Mm -hmm. and it falls into after the fires and even though people will experience a bushfire in very different ways even if they're all on the ground at the same time um it kind of bonds them. And then you've got the new people who arrive in after town and haven't experienced that. And although they can be empathetic, it is a big bridge to cross to try and merge the community. So you end up with disparate groups. Mm-hmm. And really they all need to pull together because the problem, one of the biggest problems is that the community, even though they've got these beautiful new buildings and everything, they've lost their economy. Half the town left and the people that are there are strapped for cash. And so there's nothing to churn it over. Mm. And and but you bring up this whole point, uh, do these newbies have the right to ask the 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 with the oldies about their experiences. Yeah, it's difficult. Should they or shouldn't they? And and this is this comes out in the book too. It's 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 clever. You know, you, you're left wondering. <laughs> That's right. Um, it's um. I think, you know, there's two sides of the story that comes up in the book. It's like, well, um, it's my story. I should have control on when I tell mm. it. And that is absolutely correct. But if you don't tell it, do you then have the right to be distressed when someone asks you about it? Mm. Well, one of these newbies is Layla from Turkey. And she has complexities with this as well as the Australian idiom. And, of course, she does bring the empty plate when told to bring the plate. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's so, uh, yeah. And Eric. She's very open about her own problem with postnatal depression. You know, she's she's out there. She's talking about it. How do the others react about this? I think... Erica really challenges them because she is quite open about about her own life and so then um, she expects the others um, to be open. But Beck, uh, Sophie and Claire all have their own um, demons and stories that have been exacerbated by the fire. So when you take a relationship before you put it under a major trauma, if there were any cracks in it, mm. they're going to become <laughs> chasms afterwards. And this is what has happened with... Um, with with these families and as it says on the front of the book it says um three scorched marriages and that's exactly what happened well let's look at one let's look at a relationship this i'm going to get fiona Lowe to read from page 45 and this is about claire the community nurse and her um partner matt and matt is a um farmer So following the fires, Matt and his father had stoically undertaken the grisly task of putting down 1,500 sheep and 200 pigs before commencing the massive refencing job. For three months he'd been very quiet, 
The nightmares lasted longer, waking him in the middle of the night, his skin slick with sweat, and Claire knew it was his distress rising to the surface. In the moments when she'd managed to penetrate the cloud of her own grief and despair, she'd always asked of him, Are you okay? Yeah, he'd reply without fail. You'd tell me if you weren't, wouldn't you? He'd invariably nodded, leaving her unconvinced and worried, powerless against the unwanted force that had embedded itself in their lives. But thankfully Matt was sounding, sleeping soundly again, and on the nights that Claire's nightmares still woke her, he didn't notice and she didn't tell him. Mm, yes, so she's the community nurse and she still has problems. But you also talk about, you, know, you, you did your own research too, about domestic violence and the increase in that after a bushfire. Yes, um, I discovered this thing called um, hypermasculinity and um, it turns out that some men, uh, due to the massive amount of stress um, after a natural disaster's testosterone levels spike, yeah. And if there was um, violence in a relationship before the fires, that is exacerbated. But they also sadly found that in some relationships where there had been no violence beforehand, it spilled out because of its uh, inability to cope. And it's um, a lot of men are not very good at talking about how they're feeling and it spills out in other ways. Mm. We mentioned um, Beck's husband Adam, who was incredibly burnt, and he so he's visually very out there. He he won the bravery award. He's very proud of his wife and and family, but he his controlling degree gets worse. And this is from page one hundred sixty four. Beck hated his scars too, not because they disfigured him, but because they trapped her. Yes, yes, that's yes. right. Oh, dear, yeah. dear, dear. Well, it's not just the adults, the traumatised young people. Oh, you know, Claire's, why is Claire seeing them? Uh, Claire, Claire, as the community health nurse, um, was she and the policeman are trying to do um, things for young to, to get young people involved um, because there is a drug problem in the town and an alcohol problem yeah. uh, um, that's spilling out so to she's the young getting people. The she's getting the girls coming in on a mm. Monday morning wanting the, the um, morning after pill. That's yeah. right, and she's absolutely. Um, what it's not an issue about giving the morning after pill. What disturbs him most is that they can't recall whether they actually had sex or how many people they may have had sex with. Yeah. Look, um, I'm going to get... This was a really good bit of writing about teenage trauma. So this is Claire um, talking to Shane, the um, policeman. So um, Shane huffed out of breath. Some of these kids have parents who are nuts. She nodded. The fires changed their family dynamics forever. In the normal world, children trust their parents implicitly. They don't start questioning or thinking their folks are infallible until their mid-teens. But on the day of the fires, when they turned to their parents for help, instead of getting the reassurance they craved that everything was going to be all right, they saw their own fear and terror reflected back of them. And now they're feeling let down and angry and scared, and they don't know who to trust anymore. And some have parents who are struggling so much that their kids are parenting them. One girl told me she's sneaking antidepressants to her mother. It's horrifying and terrifying all at the same time. It's why we need the drop-in nights. Yeah. Look, the story moves back and forth through, as you say, BF, before fire and AF. And it's not until close to the end we actually get the details of the bushfire. And all of the before and afters fit in like a jigsaw. It was really connected well. It must have been a, 
very difficult to plot. There were tears. It, oh, and it's a big book. You're, it's a generous read. It's close to 500 pages. It is. It is. And um, I think the fire scenes, I mean, the whole book caused me, is the hardest book I've written uh, because your body can't distinguish between what is real and what is imagined. So I went through the fire as much as, and oh, I went yeah. through a lot of the trauma that the, um, I was going to say patients, <laughs> that the characters went through. Um, so I'm glad you thought it fitted together nicely oh. because um, it was a very traumatic edit. And you, you had a little bit of a mystery going through there too, as we talked about um, Phil and Julie's son, Hugo, dying. But it, one of his last words to his best mate, Claire, was that he'd found another love. And we did. Oh, that you had me guessing. Well, that's good. I plan, that was the plan. It's the first time I've had a bit of a missed, slight mystery thread in a book. All right, stretched me. Oh, stretch, well, stretch well too. Look, I just thought it was a great read. Big, big, but great read. And it was Fiona Lowe's Home Fires by HarperCollins. And I was talking to Catherine Kovacic about painting in the shadows with a painting with a curse on it, and that was from Echo Publishing.